Let's open our Bibles with that in mind to Colossians chapter 4 as we continue to edge our way towards the end of this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul. Today we'll be in verses 12 and 13 of this great letter. Have you ever been to a funeral of a, a dear beloved saint who, who truly lived their life for the glory of the Lord? You know, it's a special opportunity. If you've never had that opportunity, I pray that you will, because to hear the stories of a, another believer who has lived well and finished well just does something within us as believers to cause us to want to take up the mantle and to run, to finish well ourselves, to continue on in their stead. And it is biblical for us, in fact, to imitate others who have gone before us. We Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. Later, Paul would tell the Philippians that they should imitate not only him, but others who were faithful. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Last week, we began this final section, uh, Paul's final thoughts. To the Colossians. And what we saw there was the beginning of walking through this list of fellow ministry partners that, that went alongside the Apostle Paul. Faithful men who were using their gifts behind the scenes to work in conjunction with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we were challenged by their faithfulness. We were challenged by their strengths and their weaknesses as we looked at that together. And we're still in the middle of that section, and this morning we'll see another faithful workman, another man who worked alongside the Apostle Paul, and in fact, more information is given to us about this man than any of the others, likely because he was known, well-known to the Colossians who were receiving the letter. But I just want to remind us that any time that we look at individual characters in the Scripture, that always we have to remember that in and behind those people is the character of the Bible. That God himself is always on display. And so we're never just doing a simple character study of an individual, although there's much that we will learn. But we really are looking at the work of God through broken servants, people like us, sinners who are weak and on our own really have nothing to offer, but God works in and through us. And so really this is a testimony, not just of the faithfulness of these, these individual men, but of God himself, that God is committed to building his church, and that he is doing that work. He was doing it then, he's doing it today, and he uses his people and the giftedness that he's given them toward that end. So with that in mind, let's look back at our text, Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, where we were last week, and let's read all the way through verse 18. Paul writes, As to my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they've proven to be an encouragement to me. 
Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. As we saw last week, there is really one theme that unites this entire section that closes Paul's letter, and it's this. Our union with Christ produces a commitment to Christ, gospel service, and other believers. That's really what we'll see laid out throughout these verses together. And as I mentioned last time, this, these closing thoughts or words break down into three sections. We looked at the first section last week, part one, authorized messengers in verses 7 and 9, where Paul introduced us to Tychicus and Onesimus, the men who would be bringing this letter to them. And he affirmed them as faithful men who would tell the Colossians about his circumstances. And then we opened up part two last time, and really the first section of that in verses 10 to 14, where he gives this series of heartfelt greetings. And as I said last time, this section breaks down into three parts of its own. And so we looked at the first greeting last Sunday, greeting by Jewish brothers. And there were three Jewish men who were serving alongside Paul. They were Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justus. We looked at the lives of each of those men as much as there is in Scripture about them and gleaned much from their faithfulness. But that brings us now to this second section of greetings here under part two of heartfelt greetings. And we only look at one man. Greeting number two is beloved Epaphras. Beloved Epaphras. He says there in verse 12, the first word there is Epaphras. He's introducing this new person. Now this is a man who knew the Colossians very, very well. In fact, he is likely the man who planted the church there in Colossae. So they have a great relationship with him, and Paul has actually already mentioned him way back in chapter 1. If you were here with us when we started Colossians, and you may remember that in the introductory words of the letter, Paul mentions Epaphras. Let's look at that again together. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, as Paul opens the letter, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So they learned this gospel by which they have been transformed from Epaphras, 
And then Epaphras made his way to Paul, remember, who's imprisoned in Rome, and tells them of the circumstances there. And if you remember what it was that was really burning in his heart that he had to tell Paul, it it was what he mentions in chapter 2, which is the fact that there are false teachers. There are false teachers who are coming into the church and they're trying to lead the people astray. Epaphras, as you might imagine, is very concerned about this. And so he goes to Paul, he expresses his concern, and that then becomes the impetus for this letter. The letter, remember, the theme of this letter is the all-sufficiency of Christ. From beginning to end, we see this total theme focused on the person of Christ over and over again. Paul then describes this man Epaphras here in verse 12 of chapter 4 as being one who is of your number. Just like Onesimus, he means one who's from Colossae. He's from your church. You know this man. And they obviously had a deep affection for him because he's the one who brought the gospel to them, who planted that church. But we will see that that affection is not one-sided. It's not just the Colossians who have an affection for Epaphras. It's Epaphras who has a great and deep affection for them. And that brings us to a second description of this man. Not only is he one of their number, but Paul says, and a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Remember that word bond slave is actually the word just for slave. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've talked about even in recent weeks, there is a sense in which every Christian is called a slave of Christ. He is our master. We are his slaves. We live for him and for his glory. But, but when this is used more as a title for a person, it takes on a different significance, a special significance. When someone is referred to as a slave of Jesus Christ, it's typically referring to someone who's proven themselves to be a workman for the, the sake of the gospel. We see this, for, for instance, of, the, of James, the, our Lord's brother, in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see it of the apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. So for Paul to use this title, this description of Epaphras means that Paul is affirming this is a man who's a servant, a true faithful workman on behalf of the gospel. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an affirmation of his ministry, but it's also an affirmation of his character. And we're going to just get a glimpse of what that looks like in the life of Epaphras in these words that we'll study today. He begins with just the simple greeting that he's already mentioned of others. Not only is he one of their number and is he a slave of Christ, but he says he sends you his greetings. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Just a simple greeting. But what we're going to learn is that this is actually not a simple greeting in the same way as the other men that he's mentioned because of the deep bond and relationship that they have together. And we're going to find in this description of Epaphras not only information, but we're going to find conviction. We're going to find instruction for us on how we are to think about one another as Christians and how we are to treat one another as Christians. Even as Epaphras is separated by hundreds of miles physically from the Colossians, what we're going to see is that he's still just as dedicated to serving them. You might say, how? 
How can Epaphras, who's hundreds of miles removed from the Colossians, still faithfully serve them? What we'll see is the answer is through the ministry of prayer. The ministry of prayer. I sincerely hope that our study of the book of Colossians has affected your life as it has mine on a number of fronts. I hope it's exalted your view of Christ. I hope that it's caused you to be more committed in the battle with sin. But I also hope alongside those that it has caused you to have a firm resolve to pray. Obviously, prayer mattered to the Apostle Paul, and it has become a theme throughout the book of Colossians. We've seen it in chapter 1, we were challenged in chapter 4 earlier, and now we're going to be challenged yet again in our prayer lives. This is the third time that we'll see this. And we see it not in the life of Paul this time, but in the life of Epaphras. Look back at verse 12. Epaphras, who's one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Now, as we break this down, really we can describe this prayer or his prayer life with three descriptions, and then we're going to notice two requests. Three descriptions of his prayer life, and then two specific prayer requests. The first description of His prayer life is consistent prayer. It's consistent prayer. Don't miss that very first word. Always laboring earnestly. Always. That's not just a word. We have to understand. We get used to reading Paul and and his letters have a lot of similarity. His language has a lot of similarity. He uses similar phrases. And sometimes we just get used to Pauline language and they don't hit us. And we think, oh, he's just being, you know, hyperbolic. But, but he really means always. He means for that to smack us in the face. Always laboring earnestly. It's the exact same way that he described his own prayer life on behalf of the Colossians back in chapter 1. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And it's the kind of praying that he called all of us to follow in earlier in chapter 4, Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And now he commends Epaphras as a man who has followed in his footsteps, who is living out the instruction that he's given on prayer. Here's a man who consistently prays. He always prays for you. You can almost picture it. It's as if Epaphras is there. He's, he's thinking about the Colossians. He's far removed from them. And as these emotions for them, this care for them, this concern for them boils over in his heart, it comes out of his mouth in prayer. Just a continual flow of prayer for these beloved believers. But not only is his prayer life consistent, it's fervent There's a second description here. It's fervent prayer. Back at verse 13, or verse 12, in the middle of the verse, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Laboring earnestly. This word laboring is an interesting word choice on the behalf of Paul. It's, It's not the generic normal term that you would use in Greek for work or for labor. It actually is an intense word that carries with it the idea of struggle. Here's a a definition. It's to fight 
or to struggle. In fact, the, the same Greek lexicon that gives us that definition suggests that in this context, an appropriate way to translate this is wrestling in prayer. You get the idea. He's, he's laboring earnestly. He's wrestling in prayer on behalf of these Colossians. We see this is not casual praying, that, that he's not just sort of, you know, going throughout the day and they come to mind and he gives a little prayer that's, you know, kind of half-hearted. But he is, he's laboring, he's, he's on his face before God, he's calling out to God on behalf of these Christians. And of course we have to ask, when is the last time that we prayed for someone with such urgency that we could legitimately call it wrestling on their behalf? Wrestling with God. Struggling earnestly with God for them. Do we pray as if God really listens? As if he cares? Do we pray as if we believe that God has the power to accomplish the things we are asking? And when we step back and think about it, this kind of praying, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, really should be the natural overflow in the life of a Christian, especially a Christian who firmly holds to the sovereignty of God over all things. There is a false doctrine out there about prayer that's become commonplace because of the influence of of prosperity gospel preachers who preach a false gospel, but they claim that we must pray with passion and urgency because in so doing, we claim our request from God, that we, that we exercise our faith and we, we name it and claim it. And sort of our passion and our urgency requires God to give us what we ask. But understand that the passionate prayers of Epaphras here, this wrestling with God, is, is not an attempt to coerce God, as if Epaphras sees himself as having power over God. Instead, this kind of praying flows out of a right understanding of the fact that it's God who is all-powerful, that God is sovereign over all things, and therefore we come to him with urgent, heartfelt, and passionate prayers because we know that he alone has the power to accomplish the thing we're asking. So passionate praying, wrestling with God, is not an expression of our power over God, but rather our recognition of the power that God has. It's coming to him knowing that we are desperate, that nothing will happen. Not a single soul will be saved. Not a single soul will be discipled. The world will not change. Nothing will happen unless God does it. And that is why we pray. That is why this man wrestles with God, because he knows the God to whom he prays. So the laborious and intense prayers of Epaphras flow out of his love for these brothers, yes, but also out of his faith in the nature and character of the God to whom he prays. Let me ask you, what does the quality and consistency of your prayer life reveal about your theology of God? How do your prayers speak of what you believe about the God you serve? If others were to observe our prayer life and to hear all of our prayers in a given day or a given week, would they see us as wrestling with God, as as believing God has the power to answer our requests if it would be in accordance with his will? May we be prayer warriors, wrestling, laboring in prayer as is fitting for those who believe that God is good and that he's sovereign. That brings us to another description of his prayer life 
It was not only consistent, it was not only fervent, but we see that it was selfless. Selfless prayer. Look again at verse 12 of Epaphras. One is, he's one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ. Sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. For you. The subject of these prayers that are so earnest, that are, are described as, as wrestling, as laboring with God, are not for his own good, but they are on behalf of others to pray for these Christians. Now, that's not to insinuate, by the way, that, that we should not pray for personal needs. It's not to say that, that we shouldn't pray for, for the things that we need in a given day or in our life. The, the scriptures actually command us to do that. It's included in our Lord's Prayer. But I think that we could all admit that, that many times, perhaps oftentimes, when we pray most earnestly, it's about the things we want, isn't it? Not always. I, I pray that you've matured in your prayer life uh, and so that that's not the case. But often when we really labor in prayer before God, when tears are soaking our pillow at night in prayer, most often it's for things we desperately desire for ourselves, our own family, but here's a man who's laboring, who's wrestling with God for other Christians, for God to do something on their behalf. We can learn something from that. Do we have the same urgency when we pray for other Christians? And this is where we have to recognize the presence of God in and, in and behind this text, that even though his name is not mentioned directly as doing anything here in these verses. He absolutely is doing something. That's why Epaphras is praying to him. We see that God is our only hope. If we want anything to be accomplished in our life or in the lives of others, God is our only hope, and therefore we must come to him. Put yourself in the shoes of Epaphras. You go into a city that's never been evangelized, and by God's grace, you have the opportunity to share the gospel, and people start getting saved, and so you start to disciple them, and sure enough, you have a church, and you begin to, to, to lead that church, and that church begins to grow, and, and you establish elders in that local body and then move on. Think of how your heart would be attached to those people, and that's Epaphras. He's not there physically. can't teach them personally, oh, but he can pray. And he doesn't see that as second best. He knows if they're to hold fast in their faith, if they're to hold ground, if they're to grow, that God must do it. But what's perhaps most striking to me about these prayers from Epaphras is, is not even the manner of his praying, but the content. It's what he actually prays for. And what we see is there are, there are two reoccurring requests that he's praying so fervently on behalf of these Christians. And, and what's most striking is that he doesn't pray about their physical circumstances or their physical well-being. Instead, he focuses his prayer on their spiritual health and their spiritual maturity. Let's look at the two requests that he offers to the Lord here. This brings us now to the near the end of the verse, he's laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that, here it comes, two requests, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That you may stand perfect, that's the first request for spiritual maturity. He prays that they would be spiritually mature. That word perfect is a very literal translation of the Greek word. In fact, it, it can absolutely mean perfect. But it can also be translated as, 
as, as perfect in the sense of, of maturity or fully developed. The idea here is, is not that, that Epaphras is insinuating that we can reach actual moral perfection in this life. That is what will come in glory. But rather that his desire is for these to be spiritually mature, deep-rooted Christians. For them to be progressing in their faith towards perfection. To be growing in maturity, fully developed. And you may remember this is exactly the kind of prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians back in verses 9 to 12. Let me read that to us again. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask, here's what he prayed for them, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Just like Epaphras, Paul's prayers for the Colossians centered on their spiritual maturity, on their spiritual health, rather than their physical and temporal needs. And notice here, in, back in our verse, this word stand. He says, that you may stand. And both requests modify that phrase, that you may stand. He wants them to stand in maturity. He wants them to, to stand against, in context, the false teaching and the false teachers that are coming against them. God, help them to stand. Help them to stand strong in the truth. If you weren't with us in chapter 2, then, then you missed our, our description of those false teachers. But let me just quickly read to you again some of the things that were being thrown around in the church there and in that region. Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 2, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. He goes on, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Here we have a description of a myriad of false things that were being thrown at this little church in Colossae, the church that Epaphras helped to plant. There was legalism, a call to live according to man-made rules. There was asceticism, that is harsh treatment of the body, thinking that if we physically deprive ourselves, that somehow that will cause us to progress in holiness. There was mysticism. 
This idea of connecting to God, not according to his word, but through mystical experiences of visions and dreams. And Paul is, is warning the Colossians to stay away from such things. Do not be led astray. But what Epaphras is praying here is directly connects to that. God, help them to stand mature. Help them to stand in the faith. Help them not to forget the things that I, I labored to teach them. Don't allow them to be drawn away from the pure gospel that I gave to them. God, help them to stand. So you see the urgency and the reason behind his praying. He's begging God to hold them fast. God, hold them. Keep them. But addition, in addition to spiritual maturity, he prays for a second request that ties into the first. His second prayer request is for doctrinal certainty. Doctrinal certainty. Look back again at verse 12 there at the end. Laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand. Perfect is the first prayer request. And secondly, fully assured in all the will of God. Fully assured. God help him to stand mature and God help him to stand in assurance of the truth. When he says in assurance in the will of God, he means doctrinal assurance, that they would understand the truth, that they would not be persuaded by these new, fancy, perhaps attractive, false doctrines that are being thrown around. God, give them full assurance of their faith. Give them full assurance of the things that I taught them. Help them to be able to distinguish between what is true and what is false and help them to stand. But what's interesting here is that Epaphras understands that the key to them standing in their faith is not his physical presence, but the presence of God, the Holy Spirit working in their life. And so he prays. I can't be there physically. I'm not there to protect them. I can't stand in the pulpit and say, don't listen to these people. Listen to this. But God, you can do a work in their hearts. And so I will pray. God, help them to stand. Let me ask you, how often do you pray for the spiritual strength and maturity of other Christians? The prayers of Epaphras remind us that while it's not wrong at all to pray for the physical needs of one another, it is their spiritual health that is always primary. God is concerned with our physical well-being. That is true. And as I mentioned earlier, we're told to pray for physical health and, and, and for daily provisions. But we're also reminded time and time again in the scripture that these physical needs are not primary. You may pray for physical health, but it may not be God's will to give it to you, is the truth. But when you pray for God's people to be sanctified, and when you pray for them to be godly, and when you pray for them to be faithful and to be more like Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that you are praying in accordance with the will of God for that person. That is what God is doing in the world today. He is saving his people, he is sanctifying his people, and one day he will return and bring them to be where he is that they will be glorified. And so when you pray, God, do the work that you said that you are doing, you're praying in accordance with his will. This is what he tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more 
For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. For those of you that struggle and you want to know what is God's will for my life, Paul says, this is the will of God for you, Christian, your sanctification. Your sanctification. And he goes on to describe that sanctification. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 28. In instructions for husbands and wives, we also see what, what God is doing for his bride, the church. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." And so the takeaway from this is that when another Christian asks you to pray for them for a physical need in their life, pray for that need. Pray for that physical need. But then turn immediately in and with that prayer and pray for them to be sanctified through the trial. It may be God's will to take that physical ailment from them. God has, has not left his power. God can do that. God can heal. We believe in a sovereign God who's all-powerful. But we also know it's not always his will to physically heal. And sometimes he uses even the most difficult things that we can imagine in our lives for good. To bring us into conformity to his son. And so as you pray for that very difficult thing, as you weep with those who weep and grieve with those who are grieving, pray also, but God, use it. Don't waste it. Use it for their spiritual growth and maturity. Perhaps the most famous verse along these lines is, of course, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, far too often, our prayers are geared towards asking God to bring about circumstances in our life that we believe will result in the maximum amount of physical comfort and personal happiness. But over and over again, the scriptures reveal that God is most concerned with providentially directing our circumstances to produce the maximum amount of Christ-likeness. And sometimes those circumstances are very different than the ones that bring about personal comfort. So we have to be careful in our prayers that we are praying in keeping with God's revealed will, what he has said he is doing in our lives. Finally, Paul explains that these prayers for the Colossians flow out of a heart in Epaphras of deep concern. Look back with me at verse 13. Paul says, For I testify of him that he has a deep concern for you, Paul's able to testify for him. That is, I'm a personal witness. I have seen it played out before me. And he says, what I have witnessed in this man, Colossians, is that he has a deep concern for you. He loves them. He's praying for their spiritual maturity. He's praying for them to, to be held fast, to stand strong, because he has a deep affection for these people. This is the kind of genuine concern that is to mark real Christian fellowship in the church. These are the kinds of relationships we're to have with one another. Our union with Christ also brings us into union with one another so that we live real lives together. We bear one another's burdens. We, we pray for each other. We serve one another. We share life together. 
This is the way Paul felt about the Colossians, and it's the way Epaphras felt about the Colossians. But it turns out that Epaphras had this kind of affection not only for this little church, but for other churches. He says that in the Lycus Valley region, which is the region that Colossae existed in, still is there today, there are these other churches, these other towns that have churches as well. He says, and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Most commentators believe that it was Epaphras who planted not only the church in Colossae, but the other churches of the Lycus Valley region in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, if your biblical geography is rusty, I have a, a map here for you that may help. You'll notice in the, the larger picture is the sort of the scale, and then it zooms in there at the top on the Lycus Valley region. You have Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis there in, in a, sort of a triangle. And so they all follow this river that runs through that area. And so you can picture Epaphras just sort of walking the river, going from city to city, beginning in Colossae and then Laodicea, Hierapolis. And so he has a deep affection for all of these Christians that he's had the opportunity to witness to, to share with, to plant churches there. And these, these cities are so close together that if Colossae was ex experiencing this kind of false teaching, then it's very likely the other churches were as well, that this was sort of running rampant through the region. And so his love, his care, and his prayers, no doubt, were continually going up to God, not just for the Colossians, but for these other people groups as well. This is a faithful man. This is a man that we should learn from, that we should emulate in our own lives. But how specifically? How specifically should we emulate this faithful man, Epaphras? Let me suggest two ways in particular. In the form of a question. Are we genuine in our love? Are we genuine in our love? The kind of intense praying that defined the life of Epaphras was clearly built upon a deep sense of genuine love and care for these Christians. That reminds us that in our union with Christ and our union with one another, we also are to have new affections. Our union with Christ gives us new affections for Christ, and our union with one another in the church gives us new affections for one another. And so ask yourself, do I genuinely love other believers, other Christians? Very practically, have you taken it upon yourself to intentionally build relationships with believers in this local church as an expression of your love for Christ and for others? Do you live in close enough relationship with other people in this church to even know how to pray for them, to even know what's going on in their life? Those things take intentionality. It took intentionality on the part of Epaphras, and it takes intentionality for us. Clearly, he had a love for these Christians that drove the consistency and the fervency and the selflessness of his prayers, and we need to cultivate that same genuine love and care here. I love this church. It's, it is a, a breath of fresh air for me. I hear <clears throat> excuse me, often of people experiencing love and care in this church. The only way that that's going to continue is if all of us continue in that work. We have to give our effort to love each other. So love each other well. Spend time with one another. Go out of your way to care for one another, 
Because that's what it is to be in community with other believers. And don't neglect the ministry of prayer. Pray for one another. And that brings me to a second question. Are we fervent in our prayer? Are we fervent in our prayer? Being honest with yourself, how often do you pray for other members in this church? When's the last time that by name you took time to pray for a member of North Lake Bible Church? How often do we pray for churches and believers that we know from afar, as Epaphras was doing? Is it a regular thought in our minds and practice in our lives to bring other Christians before the throne of God in prayer? And when we pray, how can we describe our prayer life? Do we pray with fervency? Do we pray with genuine faith that we're praying to a God who hears, a God who cares, and a God who has the power to act if he chooses to do so? How much time do we spend praying for physical circumstances and physical needs rather than spiritual maturity in and through physical circumstances? You know, this is an opportunity for us yet again for a third time in Colossians to test our hearts in the area of prayer. Clearly, prayer mattered to Paul, mattered to Epaphras. It's part of the Christian life. It's as normal as breathing for the Christian to pray, as we've said before. And so how often do you pray and how often do your prayers reflect the things that the Bible says matter most to God? We cannot underestimate or undervalue the gift and privilege of the ministry of prayer. But perhaps this morning you listen to this message and you listen to the prayer of Epaphras and you listen to how much time he spent and how much care he had for these people and you wonder, why would anyone want to put forth that much effort for someone else? And the answer to that question is the transforming power of the gospel. You see, the gospel that so transformed the lives of the two individuals that were baptized today that's transformed the life of every Christian here, is also the gospel that had transformed the heart and life of Epaphras. He prayed for these believers because he had a transformed, renewed heart through the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus Christ is good news because it comes in the midst of some very bad news. And that bad news is our sin. We are a people who have sinned against God, not just in little ways, but we have broken his law, and there is no way back. We've broken his law, and his law is like a chain. You break one link in the chain, and you have broken it all. For if we've committed one sin, we're guilty of breaking the whole law of God. But Epaphras knew that in that darkness, in that bad news, in which we should all be separated from God under his wrath forever, comes a bright light, and it is the light of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, just give me a moment to tell you of him. Though you sit here today, if you're not a Christian, and you are an enemy of God who deserves his wrath, Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is God who took on human flesh to live a perfect life in our place. He never broke God's law. He never sinned, even in the slightest of ways. 
And then he offered his perfect life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and rose again on the third day, demonstrating that he really was who he said he was and that God the Father saw his sacrifice as completely sufficient, that it was done. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And what he meant is that he had done it. He had drunk the cup of God's wrath that was to be poured out on all of our sin. He drunk it himself, and he drunk it to the last drop. The Bible says, for all who will come to trust in this Jesus, understanding that they are sinners who desperately need forgiveness through him, if you will trust and believe that Jesus really is the Son of God who lived and died and rose again in your place, the Bible says you will be saved. If you're willing to turn from your sin and follow Jesus in faith, trusting in his good works and not your own, then you will know eternal life. But not only eternal life, you will be adopted into his, his family, a family in which every believer is a part, sons and daughters of the king, so that our relationship is not only transformed with him, but with one another. And friend, when that happens, you will begin to pray. That's what happened to Epaphras. That's why he cared so much. That's why we must care so much to pray for one another. May we not neglect it. Let's pray now. Lord God, it is humbling to think again on the gospel as we do every week. And it's humbling because we know ourselves. We know what's behind the facade that we so carefully craft for others to see. We know our heart. We know our deeds. And what is so overwhelming is that you know them too. They are laid bare before you. And yet in your grace, you bid us to come. Come by the blood of the Lamb and have our sins washed away. God, may it never get old. And may its impact drive us not only to dwell on our eternal life, but the life that you've given us today to live for the glory of your name, to strive for greater depths of holiness, not to earn your favor, but in gratitude for what you've already done. And God, help us to be a people that prays, a people that prays because we know the God to whom we pray, that you care, that you're good, and that your arm is not too short but you can accomplish your will and you will cause it to happen. God, save your people, sanctify your people for the glory of your name. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.